Welcome to Booksmart, a podcast where we read and share books that have a positive influence on our daily lives. Whether it's self-improvement, success, or something fun, we're here to help you read your way to a better you. I'm Melissa. And I'm Em. And this week we're reading Joyful by Ingrid Fettel Lee. Before we get started, here's a brief summary of this week's book. Have you ever wondered why we stop to watch the orange glow that arrives before sunset, or why we flock to see cherry blossoms bloom in spring? Is there a reason that people, regardless of gender, age, culture, or ethnicity, are mesmerized by baby animals and can't help but smile when they see a burst of confetti or a cluster of colorful balloons? We are often made to feel that the physical world has little or no impact on our inner joy. Increasingly, experts urge us to find balance and calm by looking inward through mindfulness or meditation and muting the outside world. But what if the natural vibrancy of our surroundings is actually our most renewable and easily accessible source of joy? In this book, designer Ingrid Fettel Lee explores how the seemingly mundane spaces and objects we interact with every day have surprising and powerful effects on our mood. Drawing on insights from neuroscience and psychology, she explains why one setting makes us feel anxious or competitive, while another fosters acceptance and delight. And most importantly, she reveals how we can harness the power of our surroundings to live fuller, healthier, and truly joyful lives. So Em, why did we read this book? Okay, so as we talked about in episode five, Designing Your Life, and six, Finish, my fuel tank for play and fun has felt especially low lately due to a really busy season in my business. So I started seeing this book everywhere over the last couple of months. It's been really popular, and it just called out to me like a siren. I definitely needed some extra joy in my life, and I clung to this book like a life raft. It's funny, I actually never heard of this book before (laughs) you recommended it, but now that I've read it, I think... It'll be a really nice change of pace for our regular listeners to focus on joy Mm. instead of finding little actionable ways to optimize our lives. Don't get me wrong. This book has plenty of actionable tips and design suggestions to help you bring more joy into your life, but it's not an action plan or a workbook the way some of our other choices have been. Mm, Definitely. Okay, so let's open the book and get started. How do tangible things create an intangible feeling of joy? That was the question that sparked Ingrid to write this book in the first place. Her background is in design, and she was in this presentation and wondered, how come people are reacting to my tangible objects, my designs, with a feeling? Which I thought was a really interesting way to kick off the book. Mm, Definitely. And she's sort of pointing out that aesthetics are not just frivolous decoration, they actually affect our emotions. Like there's a, she points out that research is showing an, a clear link between our surroundings and our mental health, our physical health, and you know how we experience the world around us. Yeah. For example, she says studies show that people with sunny workspaces sleep better and laugh more than peers in dimly lit offices, or that flowers improve not only people's moods, but their memory as well just to name a few. Yeah, I highlighted that one. It's great news for me since I'm obsessed with both sun and flowers. (laughs) As all of our regular listeners will now know about you. (laughs) So in doing this research, Ingrid identified actually 10 different aesthetics of joy. And before we list them, I want to just bring up what is joy 
at mm. all. So in the book, Ingrid describes joy as an intense, momentary experience of positive emotion, one that can be recognized by certain telltale signs, smiling, laughing, a feeling of wanting to jump up and down. So this isn't like contentment, mm. which she describes as being like curled up on the sofa or bliss or lost in a tranquil meditation. Mm. Joy, she says, is skipping, jiving, twirling, giggling. It's an exuberant emotion, mm. a high energy form of happiness. Mm. So when we talk about these 10 aesthetics of joy, that's the feeling we're talking about. It's not like an overall life contentment we're seeking. It's energy. It's momentary positive vibes. Right. Those exciting bursts of pleasure and joy walking on cloud nine. Right. Exactly. Okay. So let's get into the 10 aesthetics of joy. First, we'll just read them out. So drawing on her design background, what Ingrid did is she started to group things together. She literally pinned things up on bulletin boards and tried to ask herself, what do these things have in common? And that's how she was able to identify 10 aesthetics of joy, each of which reveals a distinct connection between that feeling of joy and the tangible qualities of the world around us. Before we jump into each one, we're going to list all 10. So the first is energy. And we can identify that in terms of vibrant color and light. Next up is abundance, a lushness, multiplicity, and variety. Next is freedom, so nature, wilderness, and open space. Harmony, balance, symmetry, and flow. Play, circles, spheres, and bubbly forms. Surprise, contrast, and whimsy. Transcendence, elevation, and lightness. Magic, invisible forces and illusions. Celebration, synchrony, sparkle, and bursting shapes. And finally, renewal, blossoming, expansion, and curves. And before we dive into each aesthetic of joy, let's think about our capacity for joy like it's a pilot light on the stove, always burning, and we can ignite it by making more of it, looking for it, crafting more of it, spotting and savoring it, and sharing it with others so that it expands throughout our world. We always have that capacity for joy in us, and now it's about activating it. And so working with that image of joy as a light, let's talk about the first aesthetic of joy, energy, in terms of vibrant color and light. It's probably no surprise that color evokes energy, because if you look at many celebrations globally, China's dragons, Brazil's carnival, India's holy, all of these are marked by vivid, bright colors. Exactly. And so Ingrid found in her research that the liveliest places on earth all have one thing in common, color. And also language is really linked to light and dark around positive and negative emotions, like our moods brighten and darken and we feel blue or that life is golden. So color and light are really intrinsically linked together. She also mentions that different cultures associate different colors with different meanings. Mm. But what we all have in common is that a sense of lightness mm. brings joy and energy while darkness does the opposite. So just like Em said, our moods brighten and darken. And that's kind of the universal understanding of color across different cultures. Yeah. It was also interesting to me how she pointed out that color was really essential to our survival as we were evolving. Color is really energy made visible, like red berries or green plants. So we needed to be able to identify those colors to know what we could eat and what would energize us. And so really at the heart of the energy aesthetic is that it's a vibrancy that lets us know our surroundings are alive and can help us thrive. And so we can use color and light to do that in our lives. Maybe the most fascinating example in the book was the story of this Albanian city of Tirana. 
the mayor was trying to turn the city around. They had this massive crime rate, and it was really mm-hmm. run down. And what he did was he painted the buildings really bright colors, bright oranges, really vibrant tones. Mm-hmm. And almost miraculously, crime in the city went down. I mean, all of the stats that you were hoping to yeah. minimize, they all went down. I'm sure there was maybe more to it than just the painting and the colors. But if you imagine your own city or wherever you live, you take notice of the pop of a neighbor's red door Mm -hmm. or just little things like that. And so I could see how this would have a really positive influence on Tirana. Yeah. Yeah. We underestimate color's power, truly. And we underestimate it so much that we even veer towards chromophobia, a fear of color. And I love that Ingrid talked about that idea of it's not just that we're afraid of color, we're really afraid of making a choice and making the wrong choice, making a mistake and then having to live with it. That was really interesting to me. I can relate to this as somebody who's, you know, decorated an apartment. Mm-hmm. It can feel intimidating to pick a bold color mm-hmm. because you know you'll have to live with it and what really matches, anything mm-hmm. else. Sticking with subdued tones can feel safer. Mm-hmm. As someone who decorated my house with some fairly bright colors in certain rooms, it took me a really long time to choose those colors because I was so afraid of making the wrong choice. And we can talk about that in our follow-up episode, but really chromophobia is a real thing. And Ingrid says we need to overcome that because color and light have the ability to really make us feel joyful. And so we need to harness that. One other example I loved from this chapter was a program called Public Color. Mm. And what they do is they go into New York City schools to paint them in really bright, vibrant ways. Yeah. Many schools, hopefully not the school that you went to, but many feel really drab, Mm -hmm. very lightless, which can make them feel very lifeless. Mm -hmm. And what Public Color has found is that many of the schools that they've painted, the graduation rates are higher. The overall student testing scores are higher. There's a clear link between the vibrancy and the brightness of the school and the student's maybe motivation or the way that they feel. Mm -hmm. You can probably imagine for yourself while you listen, the way that you feel walking into a room with very white walls or just very gray, gray, beiges, sans color, kind of like a hospital or a jail cell vibe even, compared to imagine walking into a really bright, sunny room or something that's very colorful. There's just a different emotion that comes along with that. Yeah. I love what you said too about sunny room because sunlight exposure really has a very similar effect. Not only does sunlight regulate our circadian rhythms, but studies have shown that elementary school students with the most sunlight exposure advanced as much as 26% faster in reading and math. Hospital patients in rooms with more sunlight required less pain medication, and bright lights reduce both depression and cognitive decline among Alzheimer's patients. So this is not just like a nice to have in life, it's really an essential, and it's really something we shouldn't be ignoring. That's a huge point Ingrid makes throughout the book. Things like color and brightness, these aren't optional. Right. These are things that will enhance joy, even though a lot of these design aesthetics we'll talk about are often seen as extra or excess. Mm -hmm. The last thing I wanted to mention from this chapter, and we hinted at this earlier, many cultures view different colors different ways. In fact, a lot of cultures typically view black as the color of mourning. But there's a Guatemalan town where family members paint graves with their loved ones' favorite colors, Mm -hmm. and they refresh them every year. And so then they have this vibrant rainbow cemetery that feels like she says a vibrant city and a place to celebrate life rather than a monument to death. That's such a different perspective yeah. and aesthetic than most of the very gray cemeteries that I know mm-hmm. of. Yeah, absolutely. And we can start thinking about color and light in similar ways in our own lives by 
just looking around your home or your clothes and begin to, you know, lighten the largest surfaces, maybe your cabinets, your floors, your walls, your counters. And it can be simple as a rug or a small can of paint on an accent wall, or you can bring brighter color in through bigger pieces like furniture and rugs or smaller pops of color through decorative accents or like sentimental pieces in your home. That brings us nicely into the next section on abundance. So Ingrid discovered that some of the most joyful places in the world often embody abundance, that kid in a candy store feeling. Carnivals and circuses, flea markets, even an ice cream cone covered in sprinkles, a shower of confetti, a quilt even. This feeling of multiplicity, there's everything's available to us, the possibilities are endless, is a real prompt for joy. On the opposite end of the spectrum, she mentions that many evil characters consistently live in severe <laughs> minimalist lairs. And so it's the lack of abundance. It's mm -hmm. very sparse. Yeah. And this is very related to our senses too, how we're interacting with all of the input that's coming from our outside world. And it's not just the five senses that we think of. There are actually 12 to 21 different senses, depending on the scientist you happen to ask. Some of the other senses are time, equilibrium, direction. They can be internal senses like stretch, which tells us when we are full, or proprioception, which tells us where our bodies are in space. And touch just by itself has four receptors, pain, temperature, pressure, and tactility. So not only are there an abundance of senses, but there are so many different ways that we can really activate this experience of abundance in our own lives from like decorating and using textures and colors and just from decorating from multiple different angles, which is another reason why that sort of numbed out decorative style of like minimalist interior designs or contemporary buildings that are just straight and gray and angular are really sort of numbing us out, she argues. The whole concept of there being more than five senses yeah. was such a dispelled myth. I think all of us are taught about that in school. Yeah. But as she explained how many senses there are, it started to really make sense to me that you would want to stimulate more of them right. to feel more joy and to right. feel more full. Yeah. And I know she also makes this note that minimalism often tries to claim like a moral high ground, mm -hmm. dismissing aesthetics as just excess. Mm -hmm. But the key to this chapter is that even a small dose of abundance can have a big impact. Like the example she gave is of a friend who has a bright polka dot scarf. Yeah. You don't have to wear every color of the rainbow, although she does have some fun examples of friends or coworkers who do that. Mm -hmm. But even just adding a little pop of something yeah. can create a small feelings of abundance. Yeah. I loved that. I wear so many stripes and polka dots, and I loved that this explained why I love those patterns, that that little thing repeating many times just creates a burst of joy so much bigger than an individual piece could create. Uh, it's such a delight for me to see things like polka dots or stripes, or, you know, she talks about, it's like a pile of M&Ms or glitter and confetti are, are big, big focuses in the book for why these, these tiny things, but combined into many just make us feel this overwhelming, joyful sense of abundance. Her point with the confetti is that one confetto, <laughs> apparently the correct yeah. term alone, it's just a tiny little scrap of paper. But when you have an abundance of colors or maybe even textures and you put them all together, the abundance, the sheer number of them is what creates joy. Yeah. 
Yeah. So if you want to activate abundance in your life, you can create food that is as beautiful as it is filling. So really think about the different senses that you're activating that way. And you can play with texture. Maybe it's in, you know, food in your mouth or also the tactility of the things in your environment that you're interacting with, like your clothes or your decorative throw pillows or your blanket on your couch and have fun with multiple colors, like have a a cup of markers on your desk. And I do this. I only have blue pens, but I might incorporate other colors now for the, just the joy of seeing lots. Live on the edge, Em. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and then same thing with activating your smell sense, like have candles or essential oils or hand cream or perfume, or just stop to savor those sensory experiences when you come into contact with them. Up next, we have freedom. So most people, you may notice this in your own life, when you're outside, you get this feeling of being free in nature. And just a fun stat to kick this off, she mentioned that more people visited the zoo in the year 2015 than a sporting event. And even over 60% of American homes have a pet. And I thought that those were both really interesting ways to kick off this chapter about freedom being associated with nature or like the animal, the natural kingdom. Yeah, we really have this calling to nature. Of course, as a writer, I love her comparisons to the aesthetic of joy and the language we use around it. So she says, in a moment of joy, we say we are carefree, freewheeling, footloose, and fancy free. Like this aspect of freedom really is inherent in that experience of joy. Maybe the most fascinating part of this chapter is that, of course, exposure to plants and nature can bring joy, But even just exposure to the color green Mm -hmm. can increase creativity. So she said that just adding a few plants to a windowless room has been shown to decrease research subjects' blood pressure, to improve their attention and productivity, and to prompt more generous behavior towards others. And further interesting, studies have also found that that same exposure is effective, as we mentioned before, with just the color green. And it can help increase creativity as well. Similarly, I thought it was fascinating that she found that any view, so any window view of any kind of nature is good enough in terms of improving students' focus. And also workers with a window in their cubicle or office report better health and job satisfaction overall. So fascinating. I'll say that I have had some apartments that don't have much natural light or don't have exposure to windows. And I can attest to the increased feelings of freedom I feel when I'm getting sunlight or just even natural light Mm -hmm. into a home, I think it makes a really immediate difference. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, of course, not just about light or looking at nature, like the experience is also sensory too. It's, you know, plants have a, a smell, a color, there's humidity, there's texture, there's temperature. So it's, again, engaging all of our senses that really brings that feeling of freedom and openness to our experience. So a few other ways you could bring freedom into your life other than going to a window and looking outside of it. (laughs) (laughs) Which we recommend. Right. (laughs) Um, Is obviously spending time in nature if you can. Just getting outside. Uh, You could also garden or bring nature inside your home. So just bring plants into your home or office. It really is that simple. Studies show it's just as simple as bringing plants inside your house. Moving right along. Next up is Harmony. Harmony is a sense of order that brings joy to objects that don't normally evoke delight, like her examples were surgical utensils lined up beautifully or plastic items washed up on the beach could be organized in a collection that makes them feel like they go together. 
So the prime example in this chapter is the Rockettes kick line. Hmm, yeah. When you imagine all of those ladies kicking in perfect harmony, there's something really satisfying yeah. about that precision. And what I think it comes down to, she mentions, is that harmony implies effort and care, and it in involves this unifying component that these things belong together, which mm -hmm. is very satisfying. Very satisfying. I love this aesthetic of joy. <laughs> mm -hmm. I also like that she said that order comes as a joy in contrast to what it opposes, chaos and disorder. So I think so much of life sort of feels out of our control, and there's something very joyful in seeing things in harmony and organized and the order really that is able to be found in the chaos of everyday life. Another fun example from this chapter is that there are blogs out there that just have like satisfying pencils lined up or things in perfect rainbows or yeah. I'm sure maybe listeners can relate to seeing these. M is nodding. She's like, I love this stuff. <laughs> I looked up, so Ingrid mentions the blog, Things Organized Neatly, and of course I went to it. And <laughs> there are currently, as of February, some incredible photos of some of the collections at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. These photos are just spectacular in their order and harmony. They just like blissed out my brain. <laughs> I think what's nice is, I mean, we all want to feel connections to each other, to yeah. other people. And what harmony does is it evokes a sense of belonging, of sameness, yeah. of these things go together. And it also allows flow. Mm -hmm. Like if the things already go together, it's almost like you don't have to worry about them. Mm -hmm. To Em's point about the opposite being chaos, when things are very chaotic and disordered, you could feel that way as well. Yeah. But if things are all in harmony and lined up, it can free you up to worry about other things. Yeah, and truly, studies show that disorderly environments are actually linked to feelings of powerlessness, anxiety, and depression. So this is making light of that a bit, but I used to say all the time, when I had a messy room, I felt like I had a messy mind, but there's truth to that. Absolutely, and she also brings up feng shui in this chapter. Mm, yeah. She mentions being skeptical herself, but feng shui practitioners love to talk about, you know, the mysterious effects of readjusting a space. Yeah. But what she mentioned that I agree with is that if your environment makes you feel stable and balanced, yeah. you are probably more likely to feel confident taking measured risks or exploring new opportunities. Yeah. So maybe there's not this magic sense of this must go exactly in this corner, right. but rather the feeling that things in your home are in harmony, that they make sense can allow you to feel a sense of calm. Exactly. And so it, in order to instate a sense of harmony in your house, you don't have to have a feng shui master come in, rearrange things for you. You don't have to flip your bedroom around. But you can just start to think about how things might be more orderly, just laying things out on your desk in a way that they're easy to access and look visually organized. You can also activate a sense of symmetry, which Ingrid points out is, is really useful in the sort of principle of harmony by just creating symmetry where none used to exist by defining a line, maybe the center of a wall, either side of a couch, um, and then just simply center items on that axis, like rugs, lamps, art, etc. It doesn't have to be complicated in order to walk into a room and experience that little burst of like, ah, oh, this looks great. I love my house. All right. Our favorite recent topic is coming up next, <laughs> Play. We've talked about this in a few recent episodes, including Designing Your Life, Episode 5, and even as recently as Episode 7, Finish. But play is associated with round shapes. 
and possibly because circles are safe. There's no edges. So maybe it's that we don't feel any sense of risk. The ball is the universal yeah. play toy. You can play almost any sport with a ball in different varieties or different numbers of balls. But she also says, you know, rounded things are cute, like babies or Comic yeah. Sans font. Uh, like, I don't know if I'd call the font cute, yeah. but there is an inherently childish quality about it. Yeah. Um, something about those softened edges, maybe the arcs, the curves. Yeah. I have to say, initially, I was very skeptical of this whole like ball thing and circles as play. But <laughs> she pointed out that round objects do act as play cues and they are approachable shapes that engage our brains. And in fact, studies show that a part of the amygdala light up when someone is looking at something with angles, like a dish or a sharp cornered chair, but it did not light up when someone was looking at a curved version of the same object. And so the speculation is that because we evolved to stay aware of threats like teeth or thorns as potential sources of danger, we really do see rounder objects as friendly and playful and like safe to engage with. And that helped me to get over the... <laughs> broad statement that round things were more playful. And it made me also look around my home and notice that I have a lot of sharp edges. And who knew that my brain was firing just looking around my home? And I could be incorporating some softer S-curves or, you know, like a circular table instead of a square one. Just pointed out that even flowers are playful. Like they have that like circular puffball quality, certain flowers. So it really isn't like we have to change all of our environment to have curved countertops, but it's just understanding that this really actually is important and bringing ball-like accents into our lives. <laughs> Somebody's going to quote that at us, <laughs> ball-like accents. <laughs> I will say I was a little skeptical too, yeah. but the one part of this chapter, in addition to what we've talked about that stood out is she mentioned that maybe circles imply a sense of journey and continuity. Mm -hmm. So a circle, this curved line just kind of continues going. It loops around. There's this kind of playful, endless quality to it. Yeah. On the other hand, lines are rigid. Mm -hmm. Lines have an ending. They go to a corner. But curves just kind of continue. So in the way that soft edges are less intimidating, yeah. maybe there's something about that aesthetic that, again, yeah. it just feels a little bit more playful, kind of whatever. Yeah. Anything could happen. It's just going to keep going. Yeah. Yeah, there's more permission to, like, relax, enjoy the process, and right. just flow instead of go from one end to another. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe it's just that in comparison to lines yeah. and corners, yeah. round shapes and balls are more playful. Yeah. Plus, no sports that I know of are played with a cube. <laughs> Yeah, I can't think of any either. And on that note, let's take a short break before we surprise you with the next aesthetic. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash booksmart and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audibletrial.com slash booksmart to get started today. Why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audio publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. Of course, we recommend you use your free book to check out Joyful, but you can choose any book you'd like. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash booksmart. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash booksmart for your free audiobook. Okay, so the next aesthetic of joy is surprise. 
And surprise is an interesting one because joy has a way of showing up when we least expect it, especially powerful during times of sorrow or stress. And it has this sort of magical quality of interrupting what's happening, turning our attention and highlighting something good. And it pulls us into the now, but also somehow widens our perspective to what's possible. This element of surprise as an aesthetic, it's ability to quickly redirect our attention to something new was really interesting to me. Yeah, I had never thought of this before, but she mentions that the vital purpose of surprise as a human emotion is to quickly redirect our attention and to put us on alert. So that's probably why joyful surprises force us to really be present, Mm -hmm. which not many things can do. So this element of surprise I wasn't really expecting to read about in this book, not yeah. that I had any expectations, but I found this one to be pretty interesting. Yeah, same. And surprise is often fleeting and that's okay, but it really can have lasting effects on us because it does take us out of wherever we were. It puts us in the now. And then that unexpected moment of surprise and joy can really put us on an upward trajectory again or give us some perspective or prompt us to look at some things differently. One of my favorite examples from this chapter were the yarn bombers. So these yarn bombers put knit sleeves on the parking meters outside of her neighborhood on her street. Another example was a pizza place that gives out pink balloons instead of those buzzing coasters no one ever puts drinks on. (laughs) And those little elements are unexpected. And so we talked before about how color can evoke an emotion, Mm -hmm. but my takeaway about surprise is that it heightens the joy you may have already felt from another element. So you wouldn't expect to see yarn on a parking meter outside, but the surprise of seeing it there heightens the feeling you would have had from just seeing like a quilt in your home. Absolutely. Same with the graffiti knitting. She mentions people patching crumbling holes in architecture with Lego blocks. And I've seen photos of that probably on Instagram, but it is so surprising and also at the same time playful and colorful and fun and obviously it's not structurally supporting the building but it is such a delight and just uh, an out of the ordinary surprise to witness this is my single favorite example in the whole book Mm -hmm. but she mentions an 11 year old girl named jordan reeves who has a prosthetic arm Mm -hmm. and she made a different version so that she could shoot glitter out of her arm And what I loved is that other kids saw that as a superpower. So the surprise was reframing, throwback to episode five, reframing something seen as a handicap as a superpower. And I think that's so easy to do because, of course, the prosthetic came to help somebody who did not have maybe two arms like the fellow kids Mm -hmm. around them. But now to have all of these other kids envying her glitter arm, I loved that image. Yeah. Yeah. That made me really happy, too, as well, to think about. And that's... That's the crux of surprise as an aesthetic is that we can choose how to create it and we can also stay aware of how to look for it so that we can be surprised and delighted when we're walking down the street and we see a parking meter covered in a little knit scarf. Yeah. One more important part of this chapter is that we like surprises because they are a contradiction, but we need to feel something that's familiar and something that's strange. So pure strangeness could feel alienating, but weird becomes wonderful, she says, when it's tethered to an element that we recognize. Mm. So we need, like I mentioned, the building with the Legos. Like we recognize the building, but it's the Legos that are unexpected where we expect to see brick. If you're just thrown into a totally unfamiliar environment, that's not going to feel like a good surprise. Mm. Surprise is hard for us to prescribe since... 
it's meant to be unexpected, but maybe you can think about how you can surprise other people in your community in fun little ways. And stay on the lookout for surprise. Exactly. Next up is transcendence. The opening example in the chapter for transcendence was the author describing the Albuquerque Balloon Festival, where as many as 500 hot air balloons launch on a given weekend day. And as she was witnessing this probably like spectacular sight, which I would love to see one day, she realized that that joyful feeling is also described often with elevation and lightness in a way that we often talk about transcendence and sort of going up and above, like walking on air and being on cloud nine. I loved the way that she contrasted the feelings of up with the feelings of being down. Yeah. So she says our emotions seem to lie along a vertical axis. So floating and up are joy while down is sad and depressed. And yeah. like you said, Em, in high spirits on cloud nine, those are very positive emotions while yeah. down in the dumps is a very depressed emotion. Yeah. Another real benefit of transcendence is this idea of elevation, how it can be used to change our perspectives when we're up high, we somehow can see things differently. Our mind's clear and there's more of an open space for joy. So if you think of zip lining, tree houses, and Ferris wheels, these experiences both enable us to disconnect as well as feel free and really focus more on the big picture. I can give one specific example. Hmm. Whenever I fly back to New York City, I hope that I'm on the side of the plane where I can yeah. see Manhattan out the window. Yeah. There's just something really special about the feeling of being high up above it. And I think she mentions this in the chapter, but I often feel connected to something larger than myself mm -hmm. when I'm able to see it in a way that I can't when yeah. I'm just down at street level. Yeah, that change of perspective that we don't often have when we're, yeah, walking down the block. It really changes how we see things because we have a totally different view of it. Mm-hmm. So for transcendence, see if you can change your view. You might not have a treehouse, but maybe <laughs> you can see a view up above in your city or find a way that you can even have a view from a higher up apartment, a skyscraper. Maybe you do have a treehouse. That'd be awesome. <laughs> or maybe it's just taking a look out the window when you're on a plane. Yeah. Simply looking up at the sky or even adding or accentuating lightness and height is great to do in your home. So you can just add a lighter paint color on your ceiling or just add height to your home so you can draw your attention up with um, moldings or beams in your home or light accents or sculptures. I happen to use snake plants. My home has nine and a half foot high ceilings and so it's like a lot of empty space up there. So I just use these like tall spiky plants to bring the eye up. That's a great suggestion. Next up, we have magic, which I mostly love because now yeah. I have an excuse to reference Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. There's nothing really related to Harry Potter. We don't need an excuse to reference this. Harry Potter ever. Oh, great point. <laughs> uh, in this case, what magic does is it fights the sense that we're alone. Yeah. So magic gives us a deeper sense of meaning and connection to each other. And she mm -hmm. describes it as anything that could include maybe religion, but even the tooth fairy gives us yeah. a sense of magic. Or, of course, the Magic Kingdom, Disney's magical playground. Mm -hmm. What I imagine from this chapter is that magic is like this comforting answer to yeah. explain the unexplainable. And the symbol that she does offer to symbolize magic, she said was kind of like wind or chimes and yeah. movement. Yeah, yeah. I like that she said that 
this idea of magic has always offered a salve for anxieties of the unknown. So in the past, we we had diviners and spiritual healers, and you know now we have doctors and psychotherapists, but we're still out there looking for answers. And the sense of magic really does give life a deeper sense of meaning, and it, it sort of weaves a story where there's an ultimate purpose, and like the universe is looking out for us, and that can really fuel our optimism. Definitely. I think as humans, we are all logical beings and we're looking for yeah. a sense of understanding and magic is a great way to fill the gap Yeah, and it makes us feel comforted. And I did love her tangible ways that you could see mm. magic. Yeah. So I briefly mentioned the chimes, mm -hmm. but if you imagine chimes, they let you see what was previously unseen, like the air. So yeah. the wind that blows through the chimes, there's a certain slightly magical quality yeah. about that. Or yeah. another example she offered where prisms are mirrors, and mm -hmm. mirrors have this magical power to flip light. So I, I have never really thought of those little things as touches of magic, yeah. but I really enjoyed and felt joy, actually, from that new perspective. Same. I love that idea that we can court enchantment. So we can look for the fireflies. Or one of the things I love to do in the winter is when the water freezes, like just ice. I truly love to walk on it. It makes me feel so magical and powerful. But of course, like magic doesn't have to be naturally occurring either. Like we can go see magic shows or enjoy optical illusions or art installations can challenge our perception of reality. It really is all around us if we start to look for it. Definitely. Magic is real, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> Next up is celebration. And some of the aesthetics that are included in celebration are synchrony, sparkle, and bursting shapes. And these can so often be seen in big celebrations publicly. And celebrations, of course, are so often the pinnacles of joy in our lives. And they're very often communal experiences that allow us to pause and set aside differences to come together and forget our anxieties for a little while. And so it's interesting to think about how celebration can be made more tangible as physical objects in our lives in terms of these sparkling and bursting shapes. Yeah. What I noticed about her mentioning the bursting shapes, she says that there's this suggested like release of energy mm -hmm. under pressure, which can mirror the sudden wave of joy that we feel at a celebration. Mm -hmm. Another really unique point about celebration is that this is distinctly social. We celebrate yeah. with other people in the way that we don't necessarily need community for the other aesthetics. Mm -hmm. Something fascinating I learned is that chimps and elephants celebrate yeah, too, which she points out because, I mean, first of all, it's adorable. But <laughs> second of all, it indicates that celebration isn't frivolous. Yeah. And what she hints at and what I'm guessing it does is it gives this sense of belonging. It strengthens yeah. community and our bonds, which is something distinctly necessary and not frivolous mm -hmm. about being humans. One example that I thought was really interesting is that she talked about the shift in the Academy Awards yeah. and the way that they're run. So in 1935, it was a cocktail party held in a hotel. But nowadays, it's made for TV and really doesn't include the audience necessarily. Mm -hmm. And it's more of a performance than mm -hmm. a celebration. Mm -hmm. And so she talks with somebody who was producing that event, which was fascinating. But this is the chapter that meshes the most closely with episode three that we did on the art of gathering. Yeah. Because she mentions that there are some tips she would offer mm -hmm. about how to host a party. And the space yeah. really matters. The two books have a very different approach. Joyful is more about bringing aesthetic elements like plants or color or mm -hmm. certain bursting elements into a celebration 
while the art of gathering was more about identifying the meaning of why you're coming together. But I thought that the two books could work together pretty nicely. I agree. Right. She said that physical closeness is such an important aspect of celebration, which of course Priya talks about in Define the Room, that concept of making a, a room smaller so that the sense of community and celebration is like tighter and and more jubilant. Mm -hmm. One more component of celebration she mentioned is that big things express joy. She gave these examples of these giant balloons. She talked about big hats at horse races or even big feasts. So often Mm -hmm. it kind of reminds me of the abundance aesthetic as well, but a lot of things can indicate celebration. Right. So to think about how you might bring this element of celebration into your life. Obviously, you can celebrate with friends and family more often, but then also think about how you might make that space that you're celebrating in more close so that it feels more communal. Or incorporate lighting, like twinkle lights around the patio or candles at the center of table. Just draw people in and together. Even attire like, can help unite us, thinking of sports fans wearing their team's jersey. And of course, like music and dancing is so synonymous with celebration, but it can really create that euphoric feeling of oneness together. And as one final fun fact before we move into the last aesthetic, I didn't realize that often singing or dancing together can align our heartbeats. Yeah. Which I thought was just a really nice representation of this whole celebration concept. So nice. Yeah. All right. Well, last up, we have renewal. If you imagine signs of spring, there are lots of images of thawing and blooming. And that's really what this chapter focused on, even blossoming specifically. Mm. So one example is Sakura, which is the opening of the cherry yeah. blossoms in Japan, where people take time off of work to picnic and to gather and to watch this blossoming. Mm. So that's the theme of this chapter. Happiness really isn't about finding a concrete state because up and downs are inevitable. So imagine riding waves of joy and coming back up after you've been knocked down. Yeah, That's probably why the sense of blossoming or blooming feels like a renewal because it's a reminder that things do come back. We do feel a sense of newness. Yeah. I love that, that some things truly are just out of our control and we have to accept that joy moves through our lives in sometimes a very unpredictable way. And so the joy of renewal, like spring after a long, hard winter, (laughs) which I'm feeling right now, Mm -hmm. um, really reminds us too that time is cyclical. Things don't last forever. And joy is a wave that we ride up and down, which sometimes means that we're finding our way up when we've been knocked down. That sense of renewal it can be as big as something like a near-death experience or the birth of a child or ending an addiction or as small and simple as getting a new haircut, doing a fresh load of laundry, a hot shower, even just cleaning like can all elicit that, that renewal of joy. A fascinating part of this chapter, as you mentioned, things are cyclical, yeah. things come and go. Often joy is unpredictable, but nature does have a way of having this rhythm where we do know that spring is coming and Mm -hmm. it may not be as soon as we wish it was here, (laughs) but the, there's something very just comforting about knowing that there's a cycle, knowing that things will bloom again versus just wondering, will I ever feel joy again? You know, it's coming. Absolutely. Yeah. Ingrid says that flowers are a really helpful reminder of this and such a simple way to bring this into our life, both the beauty of flowers, but also like their transient nature that, you know, they live and die and gardening can be a way to sort of practice connecting with that 
feeling of renewal in your life just across your year. But just bringing simple things into your home like flowers really help to remind us that we can ride out ride out the waves of life and celebrate the beauty that we have in the moments that we choose to recognize it. So in conclusion, we encourage you to think about being the artists of your own world with a palette full of aesthetics for joy. Which one of these 10, and you can choose any of them and all of them, will you add to your canvas? Before we go, here's the bookmarked activity for you to try, which we'll both also be working on for next week's episode. The final section of this book prompts you to build your own joyful toolkit by reflecting on where the joy in your life comes from and how you might create more of it. We'll include a link in the show notes for accessing those worksheets. The first step is to find your joy by keeping a joy journal for a week or even just a few days. Use it to pay attention to any time you feel a sense of joy. You can also include joyful memories. For each moment, write down where you are, whom you're with, what you're doing, what sights, sounds, aromas, textures, or flavors are associated with your joy. Then, at the end of the week, look for patterns. You can identify where the different sources of joy in your life come from and learn how to move from inspiration, what brings you joy, to action, creating more joy in your daily life. We'll also link to the Make Your Joy worksheet in the show notes at booksmartpodcast.com slash eight. Thanks for joining us this week. To view the complete show notes and learn more about Joyful, visit booksmartpodcast.com slash eight. We've also included our top takeaways and the bookmarked activity for easy reference. Once you've read the book, we'd love to hear about it. Tell us if you kept a joy journal or had any aha moments about where your joy comes from or how to create more of it by emailing us at hello at booksmartpodcast.com. You can also leave us a voicemail at 929-515-BOOK. That's 929-515-BOOK or 2665. Lastly, we do have a quick favor to ask. If you enjoyed this episode, and we hope you did, we hope you'll leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. Reviews let Apple know that great listeners like you enjoy our show, and that helps us expand our reach in search results. Thanks again for joining us on this week's episode of Booksmart. Until next time, happy reading.